Hello, everybody. Welcome to Mace Way. Nice to see everyone. Happy fall. Fall has fallen. And those of you who know me know I hate hot weather, and so I'm very excited, grinning ear to ear. It's Jericho Road by Steve Earle. I was walking, walking down a Jericho Road Every mile that I traveled showed I walking down the Jericho Road I just kept walking Walking down the Jericho Road The sun set red over the fields of gold And walking down the Jericho Road When Joshua fit the battle It's how the story goes And the walls came Tumbling down, I know that I'm still walking, walking down the Jericho Road. Met my mother, walking down the Jericho Road. Tears in her eyes and her head hung low, and she's walking down the Jericho Road. Met my father, walking down the Jericho Road. Hung over from a heavy load He was walking down the Jericho Road I said, Pop, don't you know me Won't you lay your burden down He just shook his head and told me Son, you better turn around And kept on walking Walking down the Jericho Road Down the Jericho Road. His hands were bloody, but his face was clean. He was walking down the Jericho Road. Met my sister walking down the Jericho Road. The baby in her arms that I'd never seen. She was walking down the Jericho Road. Said it's just a little orphan child I found along the way I raised him as my own and he'll forgive us all someday And she kept walking, walking down the Jericho Road Then my mother, then my father, then my brother Walking on the Jericho Road I then my sister Walking on the Jericho Thank you guys and welcome everyone to Emmaus Way. Oh. Yeah. Good to see you, Steve. <laughs> 
Good to see lots of old faces and new faces. Uh, for those of you who have not joined us before, and for those of you who are back again, uh, Maze Way is a group of people who have been captivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ and are looking to find the ways that God is working uh, here in our community in Durham and the surrounding area and to, uh, to join in with that work that is, that is going on around us. Um, before we go any further, we've got an element, the community prayer that we do every week. Um, it's going to be led by the little people sitting behind me. So uh, I'm going to turn it over to them, and they're going to lead us in the doxology. So please join in if you know it. So uh, every week at Emmaus Way, we probably say some version of this, but you, you know, we, we at Emmaus Way believe that um, if we have faith, that God will sort of come through in times of crisis. So right now, Tim is on his way back from Charlotte, and we're all going to have faith that he's going to walk in before the dialogue starts, or else I have threatened that uh, you may get one 45-minute dance number from me. I'm just going to do an interpretive dance, put on some music. Um, <laughs> I guess, yeah, I guess face, facing west, because that's where he's coming from. Um, anyway, again, as I said, welcome uh, to Emmaus Way. Uh, for those of you who uh, are new with us, uh, another thing that you may want to know is how to connect with the community. We have a lot of different ways to get plugged in, in addition to uh, coming to our Sunday night, Sunday night gathering. Um, we have a pub group that meets uh, at Bull McCabe's on Thursday nights. And you can either show up to the pub at 8.15, which a lot of us do, um, but if you can't make it on Thursday nights, we also have a Google group, and you can be in on the readings, um, and there's some conversation that will happen on the email list from time to time. So if you're interested in that, um, you can contact me, arts at emmausway.net, and I will be happy to put you on that list. We also have a number of home groups that meet throughout the week in Durham. In, oh, wait, hold on, let's all recognize Tim has just walked in the building. Mary Man, I'm going to credit you with that one. That was impressive. I, I had threatened Tim that if you didn't show up, that I was going to do a 45 minute interpretive dance. So, um. uh, so we have a variety of home groups that meet uh, throughout the area uh, during the week. Uh, all those are listed on our website, uh, and we have the contact person for that up there. Um, we also have some information out in the foyer. If you'd like more information about Emmaus Way, we have yellow cards that you can fill out to meet with someone uh, and learn more about our community. We have green cards that have a lot of information and uh, we'll direct you to our website. We also have a silver bowl that you can uh, deposit your gifts to the community in. This is not something we, we try not to bug you with, but um, we will take your money. And uh, if you have it and would like to give it to us, um, you can deposit it in that silver bowl out there. There's also a PayPal link on the website, um, and you can you can give through that. Um, in terms of announcements, I think we've got the Ecclesia meeting coming up in two weeks. Is that right? The 19th? Okay. Is there anything that we need to know about that? 
Ben or Elizabeth? Okay. Plus, there'll be pizza, which is always a good thing. So, yeah, and the Ecclesia gatherings are a great way, um, even if you haven't been around the community for very long, it's a great way to sort of see how we do the business of uh, being a church community and the way you know, we're, we try to be very transparent with the way that we spend money and the way that we operate as an organization. So that can be a great way to come and see sort of how that works and also to get some some pizza, which is always fun. Um, so the, there was another announcement, I think, that Elizabeth had. Yeah, um, each year, once a year, we have our safe sanctuary training for new members. Um, and then we Okay, and if people have more questions about that, I'm sure they can get in touch with you after the service. Yeah, great. Uh, Chelsea, and then I think, Dave, you have, yeah. Yeah, um, mine is about our mailbox. So we, as you know, we finalized uh, renewing our lease at Reality, but part of that process involved us getting a post office box. Um, So our mailing address, if you send any checks or other correspondence to Maceway, is going to change. I'm going to make sure that's up on the website, and you can be expecting an email from me if you're someone that maybe has an automatic draft going, just as a reminder. So for the next couple of weeks, if you send things here, they'll get forwarded along, but after that, it'll get returned to you. So I'm just giving you a heads up, and you can check the website for the new address. Awesome, and I think last but not least, Dave, with a financial update. Uh, yeah, for those who don't uh, know me, my name is David. I am the treasurer here at Mansway, so I try to give, uh, we like to give just semi-regular updates on where we are financially, uh, so that's what, that's what this is. Uh, our financial year runs beginning of June through uh, end of May, so the numbers I give you, keep that in mind. Um, so we're four months into our fiscal year, and uh, contributions to date, uh, around 28000 which is awesome. Uh, we are a small community, and so and, uh, for about a few years, been self-sufficient. Uh, so everything that we're able to do here is done by the gifts of this community and those from around it. Um, so I just want to say big thank you for all the contributions to date. Uh, we are just a little bit behind where we were last year at this time, but you know, four months in, we still have some time to make up that ground. Uh, we typically set our budget based on what we've been able to uh, draw in in the previous fiscal year, so uh, your contributions uh, have a direct impact on what we're able to compensate our staff, um, children's workers, artists, and, and various things that we have going on in the community. Um, so as, as was mentioned, there's a couple different ways you can give, full, online, through mail, uh, and we're gonna give some more information at the FOC in a few weeks on kind of where we are and what is gonna be going on throughout the rest of the year budget-wise. 
Um, if you ever have any questions about uh, finding at Bandway or if you, uh, you know, how to give, please feel free to uh, get in touch with me and uh, give some more information. Cool. Thanks, Dave. Are there any other announcements that I'm forgetting? I think that's all. Cool. So I'm going to invite Mark and Casey and Dale back up. Thank you guys for being with us. It's great to have all of you. And uh, I'll turn it over to them for the songs of preparation. tune and, and uh, with the band that uh, that recorded it uh, several years ago, the Magnetic Fields. And uh, there are times when you see these lyrics, it's going to feel like you might have a moment, hey, you might have this moment a lot here anyway, I don't know, but you may have a moment of like, what in the world, why are we doing that song, what did we choose that for? And I, I you know, there's always a little bit of guesswork on my part as to where I think that the dialogue is going to go on a given night. And again, I think I always say this, that the fact that you are here and that you are participating in our dialogue tonight will change the direction of that dialogue. So there's always a bit of guesswork in choosing songs. But for whatever reason, this one to me, you know, one of the things I think we're going to probably end up talking about tonight is a certain spirit of, of um, ecumenical, like, direction to our community. And so in light of that, uh, this song just struck me, actually, as, as one uh, that... I think of ways that we can find common ground. I think of ways, um, as I think of my own journey uh, coming from a place a few years ago uh, that, that I was in a very particular place theologically uh, and, and have sort of migrated over the years and become more open uh, than, I, than I was a few years ago. And so this song, for whatever reason, to me stuck out as one that was interesting and, and that captured some of the spirit and the emotion and the ideas uh, that I am feeling tonight. <laughs> Long and boring No one 
this last week in the dialogue, or Tim thought he mentioned this last week in the dialogue. Josh actually remembered what song he was talking about, which is pretty impressive. Um, this is a song called The Long Defeat by Sarah Groves. We've done it a few times, but it's been a little while since we did it, and I'd love for you, if you do know this one, it'd be great to continue to sing along as you have already. Nothing has provoked it more 
Josh and I have worked together too long because last week when I was trying to think of that song, I didn't get a word out of the title. <laughs> I didn't get the artist right. And I don't think I got a line out of the song, but somehow, uh, Josh, you pulled that up. I was pretty impressed. Um, but anyway, it's great to see everybody here tonight. Um, this is our time in our worship gathering when we give you an opportunity to just stand and greet the people that are around you. Uh, if you're around somebody that you don't know, certainly introduce yourself. Uh, offer them the peace of Christ if you'd like. It's also a great time to grab coffee and a, a snack, and I'll call us back together in about two or three minutes. So please stand and greet each other. So pardon my late arrival tonight. I was down south of Charlotte, actually South Carolina, but south of Charlotte for uh, my dad's 80th birthday celebration. And that was, uh, that was an inter- you know, it was actually a, one aspect that was bizarre. My kids were down for the weekend and they had never met his side of the family, his siblings and cousins on that side, had never met them. And it was, it was really interesting to, um, to, to be there for the weekend and to tell them stories that I don't know that they've heard before. Um, and it's, in fact, it's interesting too, that you, that you, your family, particularly just, you know, two generations away has such an impact on who you are and how you understand your life to be and where you've come from and, uh, kind of the whole, uh, journey of your life. And, um, and so we were talking a good deal 
know, on the drive back of just kind of where we've come from, which is, uh, it's, it, you know, I, I, a lot of you guys probably experienced this as well. You probably have sides of families that never get together or live pretty far apart or are in poor health or those type of things. But for us, it was, uh, it was an interesting weekend um, doing that. And it reminded me, one of the things we're doing um, over these last four or five weeks at Emmaus Way is that same type of reunion. Mark said it well, the identity of our community is never the same in a, a dialogue and uh, community based operation like we are um, every new voice uh, every new person in our community changes us somewhat because we're, we're we, we want your voice we want your passion we want your your interest uh, to be a part of our life together uh, but we've been kind of having fun I think um, over the past four weeks talking about what are our identity markers what are the the things that are a part of our heritage that shape who we are and what we want to become and um, and, I, and I'll editorialize on this just for a second the thing that Emmaus Way, I think, is going to hit our, is this right, our, our 10th anniversary um, this spring. It's something, depending on how, how, how we mark it, but sometime between January and May is our 10th anniversary. And I've been told this many, many, many times um, as um, people, as someone who's been around church planners, is that the, the second 10 years for uh, uh, those rare kind of church plants that actually make it, which which is which is quite rare, uh, um, the the next ten years is is really dynamic and different than the the first ten years, and I feel that I sense that in my own personhood. One of the my missions here is, uh, particularly as somebody who was a founder of a community like this, is I, I'm looking forward to the next ten years being deeply shaped um, by the people that are part of this community, and hopefully these conversations are helping you to have dreams and have ideas and pushbacks and, you know, bring-ons and all those type of things that, that help us kind of think through uh, what we're trying to be in this community. And, and so I really do uh, look forward to that. I know for me it was um, the first year or two of forming a, a community like this. It was very awkward for me because I'm, I'm very, very community-driven in terms of inspiration and collaboration. And it was odd that first year or two where people just kept encouraging me, tell us what we are. You know, tell us what we're going to be. Tell us what we're trying to be. And I had many friends who were church planners that said, you you, kind of have to do that. You have to say, here's kind of where we're going so that people get a sense of of whether they want to be along for the ride or not, whether it's worth the bother and uh, whether it inspires them in some sort of way. But we're in an entirely different place as a community now where there's no one saying this is what we're to become, uh, but we're kind of working on that together. But it's been fun for us to think through... um, uh, three identity markers this week, a fourth, that really impact how we see ourselves as a, a faithful, worshiping Christian community. So I'm going to give us a little bit of summary on this, and then we're going to jump into the fourth one of these. Um, if you remember, three weeks ago, we talked about being uh, what I'll call a, a local focused community. And we asked the question, um, what makes us a community that is focused on this place in, in this community and the, 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 the space that we're located in, rather than um, churches that have aspired to be much larger than their place? Uh, uh, churches that, there's nothing wrong with that, but some churches are, are much more beyond the boundaries of any community. There are churches that have satellites, not just in the same town or a neighboring town, but in multiple states. Um, and obviously what they're doing in that context is they're saying, we're, we're saying something that we feel like is equally valid in 
in Seattle, as it is in Los Angeles, as it is in Phoenix, as it is in Memphis, and all of those things. But for us, um, we have been a community that has been deeply obsessed with, uh, with the local environment that we're in. Um, and each week, we've not only kind of thrown out a question like, why are we not a megachurch that week, but also, what are some lessons that we learn in that identity marker? And here's a few that we mentioned three weeks ago. We, we, we learned by being very rooted in a place, we learn humility. We learn that we're not able to just, because we're at, in some place, change it. Just because we want to change it. Uh, we learn our own complicity in, in injustice. We come across injustices that we're not looking at from the outside, but as in a passive or certain way have been part of the, the continuation of that injustice. And we also, being very local, we see that change can occur. Um, and we mentioned in the last three or four weeks alone, our work with Durham Can has produced some really dramatic changes in terms of staffing in local schools, how policing is done in Durham, um, uh, universal uh, food plans for all of the uh, summer for, uh, summer food for kids in schools. A lot of things that have changed. So being local um, not only uh, shows us that we are should be humble. We can't fix everything, but it actually shows us that that we can be a part of change. And and so our passion for locality has impacted us in a lot of ways. It's driven us to be very part of the conversation of that kind of local politic of how our town or or towns work. And another part of being local is this impetus that challenges us that pain, suffering, injustice are never abstractions. They're never statistics that you see on the news. They're, they're your neighbor. There's somebody that you come across. There's someone that you see. For example, um, Marsha Owen's work with, uh, I always get this wrong, but it's the Durham Religious <laughs> Committee Durham Religious Coalition for Nonviolence. So you see these things come through our, our, is that right? Yeah. I just can never get that. I, I can say it driving around my car, but never on this stool for some reason. Uh, but uh, Brett worked with them. Uh, but one of the things you see these come across our eWay social email is that they host vigils for people who have been murdered in our community. And, and it's an opportunity to say that this was, there's no life that that's lost in our community that's a, Irrelevant life. Uh, there's no person that wasn't uh, deeply filled with humanity. And, and you'll see these. You'll have probably, sadly, several opportunities in the next several months to gather on a Sunday night or Friday night and hold a candle and pray and sing for somebody who has lost their life. That's what locality does to you is it brings you very close to needs, wounds, and possibilities for change. So that's one of our identity markers. We are obsessively local. Um, a second identity marker for us is that we're also very obsessive about being a, a, a kingdom slash Catholic community. And when I say Catholic, I mean Catholic, obviously, in a small C. But uh, this answers the question, why are we not an intentional community? Why are we not a monastic community that has a, a rule that everyone follows and, and, and everyone kind of lives in co-housing together, which is a beautiful, beautiful way to do church. It's, it's something that... In fact, uh, those of you who've been around all 10 years know that we spent about six months deciding whether we wanted to do that first before we formed a, what somebody would call a church. So, but why are we not that? And, and one of the things that we said is that we're obsessed with being a part of a bigger, larger 
more universal portrait of what God is doing in the world. And, and it teaches us some pretty powerful lessons by being part of the, 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 the church at large, uh, so to speak. We are taught uh, joy in many ways. We, we, we see things that are larger than, than just our community, but things that are powerful and things that are happening. Uh, we have the opportunity to, and we're challenged to collaborate with other people and other ministries and other churches that might be quite different from who we are. And also the broad, broad historical lens at times draws us to shame. We look at the history of Christianity in the world and in, in, in our own culture and, uh, and over hundreds of years or even thousands of years, and there are parts of the narrative that are not pleasant at all. Uh, uh, those of us who kind of took that you know, class on the colonial era realized that you know, the ship landed with a soldier, with a merchant, and a missionary, and they were all working together. So this broad picture um, shapes us, it affects us, and it, and it draws us into being a people who are connecting with others, connecting with others who are different from us rather than critiquing them. And it also draws us into a spirituality that makes us constantly aware that religion and faith, something that you hold so tightly, can be in easily manipulated into something that's ugly. It can be easily manipulated into racism or greed or self-justification or exclusion. And I would imagine if we ask this question in our community, many of you could tell stories where you were a part of something like that or were the victim of, of something like that. Um, but one of the things that we also learn out of being part of the church Catholic is the idea that the good work of God is sometimes much long, larger than our personal circumstances. There are many days I wake up and I can't see the goodness of God in my life or near to me. Um, and it's why we say we gather every week, not just around the table, but we gather to hear each other's stories of redemption. Because we know it's absolutely central for us to be asking the question, what is God doing, not just in your life, but in this world and in this place? So that's an identity marker. One that's local and one that's obsessed on the bigger picture of the larger church and the kingdom of God, as we say. Now, last week... Um, and every now and then I do say, listen to a podcast. If you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to listen to the podcast for lots of reasons. But we raise the question as a third identity marker, why do we see ourselves as an orthodox Christian community? In other words, why are we a church? Why are we a Christian church rather than a ministry or a community that embraces multiple religions? Um, in fact, I was saying last week as we did the conversation, this is actually the conversation that I wanted my kids to understand when they were 12 years old or 18 years old or whatever. It was a, a truly important conversation. Why are we a church? Why do we believe in this narrative of God in this world and Christ in flesh in the world? And we raised a couple of things. One of the, the, the answers to that for us is highly related to how we understand the gospel to be, is that the gospel is this unbelievably counterintuitive message to how most people process life. Most people process life saying the more power you accumulate, the more that you have, the more significant you are. And the gospel is an, is an opposite message that power is gained by giving up power. Uh, we mentioned, um, Several uh, theologians last week, one of them, Rudolf Bultmann, who said that Christ's death, not his life, but his death, 
is not merely a sacrifice that cancels out sin in the lives of individual persons, but it's much bigger than that. It means the release from the powers of this age, law, sin, and death. And so Christ's coming is something that's incredibly different than what one might expect. And, it, and we mentioned also that in seeing the gospel as the story of a God who suffered, a God who died, the last thing that people in the ancient world would have ever imagined a religious group proclaiming, we see the identity of God, of God as a suffering God. And a suffering God is a compassionate God. And I don't know if you're like this, but I struggled for years to imagine to come to any kind of knowledge of a compassionate God. But the narrative, this crazy story of a suffering God who dies for the world rather than lives for the world... Uh, is resurrected for the world rather than holding on to life, it points us in a direction of worshiping a compassionate God. I quoted a a famous pastor that I didn't name who uh, was part of kind of a a large, very hipsterish kind of church thing. And, and this pastor made this quote. He said, you know, church should be like fight club. I mean, we need real men who are leading the church and they should be able to fight and strive and they should be a little wild and crazy. And the quote was capped off with this line is, I can't worship a God who I can beat up. Um, but that's exactly who Jesus is. It's a God that we can beat up, a God who was beat up, a God that was, was executed uh, at the hands of the state. And so how does that affect us as a community? Um, it, it reminds us that when we gather to worship, when we gather at the table, we are reenacting not a God who held on to power, but we're reenacting an amazingly compassionate God and a message that's counterintuitive to many of the wisdoms of the world that we live in. And even more so, it draws us to an absolutely radical ethic, an ethic that says the way that you love someone is the very possibility of laying down your life or giving your life for a stranger. That is the, the heart of the gospel message. And so for us, that's a third identity marker, This our orthodoxy, our, our passion for the gospel that was a message that I don't think anyone would make up, but is a, a message that is entirely different from the one that's so often told. So three markers, locality, Catholicity, and then this third of orthodoxy. I want to add a fourth identity marker this week. And for lack of a better term, I'm going to call this theological diversity and intellectual theological curiosity, the willingness to paint outside the lines. And it answers the question to some degree for people who are obsessed with the work of God. We say this, Josh, you may have said it today as our introduction. People are obsessed with the gospel. Why are we not fundamentalist if we are obsessed with the gospel? And I'll give you a short story. This is a true story, but I won't label where it was happened. A friend of mine was doing a really significant nonprofit work, one that that mattered a whole lot in the community that was located. Um, but he recognized that he he used a lot of language like the compassion of God and the love of God, and um, and some of the largest supporters of this ministry were suspicious that that perhaps he wasn't conservative enough. And so he sat down with the kind of the local mega church leader who was the largest church in the community that had once been a funder and were asking, you know, why do you not fund us anymore? And this person said, I'm, I'm just 
not sure you're one of us anymore. And, and, uh, and so this friend of mine kind of shot back and said, how entirely certain are you? That your view of the world is the perfect view of the world. I mean, how, I mean, are you that certain that you've got it all figured out? And the person's response was, I, I'm not entirely certain. I'm about 99% certain <laughs> of which, my, you know, I'm, I'm, I know about 99% of what's going on. And of which my friend shot back and said, well, in that 1% of uncertainty... Could that be the place where we partner? Could that be the place where we connect with each other? And the answer was, no, you fit into the 99%. So why are we not fundamentalists? Uh, what happens um, when we encounter uh, Christianities that might be different than the story that we tell or religions that are different from our own religion or faith constructs that are different than, than ones that we find familiar. Um, let me give you just a couple of, of markers. I, I took a class on, on spirituality that focused primarily on undergraduates, uh, and, I, and I read a couple of articles that I thought were really helpful. Uh, one article mentioned that, and I know some of you guys work in, in um, higher ed, you know more about this than I do, but uh, that the, this one author was saying that there are seven primarily significant faith narratives that you would find particularly among undergraduates in our culture. Seven narratives. Um, three narratives of what the, the author called very traditional narratives. One would be kind of an evangelical narrative, which would be a narrative of, of truth, of, of, of um, usually some form of absolute, absolute or non-negotiable truth. So that's one narrative, evangelicalism. A second narrative is a, a wounded belief, uh, a narrative that finds meaning in suffering, that, that in some way we draw closer to God, not when we're triumphant, but when we suffer. And a third fairly traditional narrative is a traditional mainline narrative, uh, one that would fit more in the denominations that are not evangelical denominations. And it, it's often a deep confidence in historical traditions that have been passed down through a denomination. So evangelical, wounded belief, a traditional mainline. But the author also identified three alternative narratives. One is a narrative of activism that says that Faith really happens, meaning really happens, not in theological propositions, but in constructing faith by doing. So that when people live out and act out justice, they are aligning themselves with not just the work of God, but the person of God. So activism. A fifth narrative is the narrative of exploration. You probably know a lot of people who are, 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 are not apathetic whatsoever about their faith or spirituality or meaning, but they are aggressively willing to explore lots of different sources for that. That's a fifth story. Uh, a sixth worldview or faith narrative is, is humanism. The idea that one doesn't need to be religious or that one doesn't need to be a theist to believe in God to live and build a moral good society that hinges around notions of justice. Those are six narratives. A seventh narrative would be other religions that often talk about the same things that Christianity talks about, but does it from different understandings, different histories, and different ways to know God. So we do live in a culture, and especially here in, in, in Durham and in Chapel Hill and the Triangle, where there's lots of different narratives about faith and meaning. And, and in fact, when we talk about those narratives, you can't even say the word Christianity 
without realizing that there are multiple narratives of Christianity. Uh, It's not hard to see people describing the same characters with an entirely different message. So I want to turn this over to you for a minute or two, and then we're going to jump into a text and we're going to reflect on that a little bit. Um, But in this kind of impulse of looking beyond traditional sources, our, our orthodoxy, or our Christian heritage or faith for truth and meaning, which is a part of, of, of who we have been as well. Here are some questions. And you can be the most orthodox person in the room. Uh, you can have written the systematic theology that everybody reads and still answer these questions. Because I think they apply uh, to, to almost all of us. Uh, but here are the questions. What do you feel less certain about? What are things that you might say are part of the province of faith, but you're not that certain about? Second question is this. What have you learned that's significant to you from outside the Christian tradition? What have you learned outside the tradition? And then the third uh, question is similar to this is what kind of questions, conversations, or issues does traditional Christianity struggle to focus on, talk about, or deal with? So three questions. I'm going to throw them all out at the same time. Um, I'd love to hear from a lot of people, so let's you know, kind of uh, speak briefly if we can. But what do you feel less certain about? What have you learned from outside an orthodox message of, of, of particularly Christianity? And what kind of issues does the Christian heritage or tradition struggle with? Have at it. Issues does Christianity struggle to deal with? Um, That's a fair answer. Those are great answers. Uh, you and I traded some messages about that this week. I thought it was a great question of how do I interact with part of our tradition. We did a dialogue series like 12 solid weeks on Joshua and Judges about four years ago. And I think we were all traumatized by about the, the ninth or 10th because it's not stuff you read. When you've got a priest cutting up his concubine into 12 parts to send them over. You know, at that point, you're like, okay, I wouldn't let my kids watch this on television. I'm I'm certainly not going to pray over it, and I don't even feel good about having read it among friends. Uh, so, uh, So there are parts of our heritage that are traumatic. Somebody else. Thanks, Brian. That's great. I'm less certain of sort of bourgeois assumptions through which we tend to read the Bible. So, for instance, people, you know, they, they read um, the creation story and, and Adam and Eve in the garden, and everything's like, okay, there isn't, um, there's no sense of threat or, but actually the Hebrew says, God put man in the garden to watch over it and protect it. So really there's conflict and war, even in, this is before the fall. And, and but we have this kind of bourgeois version of the fall where there was no conflict, it's all okay and property secure. 
And I, do, I don't believe that very much. Um, then I'd say what I've, the tradition I've learned from is the sort of postmodern critique of a modern project and, and the kind of certainties that secular liberalism brings. So the critiques of so the, the Bible project or higher criticism, those kind of things, I'm, a, I'm more skeptical of them than I'd be of, of their critiques of, um, of the Bible because they, you know, oh yes, some German expert who is 1900 years after the event can piece together better than the people who lived like 50 years after the event. Just kind of skeptical, especially since the guy's academic career hangs on it. Um, and, and I think that the questions that um, that contemporary or, or I say not just evangelical uh, Christianity, but Protestant Christianity really struggle with is to produce a kind of anthropology and a politics which which stem from faith. Uh, in, in my own academic discipline in law, the, the, the arguments that the, the people who are Christians keep having this argument about whether you can found nat- natural law and reason or not. But like, I need, you know, I like need ammunition to critique um, whether company law is just or not. And there's no, there's, there's nothing. There's nothing to build a bridge with. And so I'd say what contemporary Christianity struggles with is producing a kind of really powerful analytical critique of our, our conditions that we live in. Yeah, it's interesting. Andrew, you said a couple of things there that I want to underline that's important is when you're talking about certainty, you're not really talking. I know a lot of us have been conditioned um, with kind of a, kind of a liberal conservative conversation with Christianity. I know when I went to seminary, that was the dominant thing. That was kind of a slippery slope argument. The idea that would be like, what could you believe, or what could you be excited about that would lead you to a slippery slope that you were no longer a, a, a true believer anymore? But certainty in our culture has been a liberal project. It's been a fundamentalist project, and it's been a Catholic project. So, so there, there's, it's, it's all of those things have been committed to, to certainty. And, and you're also right that, um, that Christianity has had, this is not the case now, it's why I kind of enjoy the postmodern world, but the, Christianity has had 1,500 roughly amount of years as the dominant cultural force. And it's hard to have a uh, kind of a political perspective, a change perspective when you're in charge. Uh, it's kind of like it's like you know being a, a you know some sort of autocratic country that has open elections, but the dictator wins 98 percent, and you know the two percent are paid to vote, and then they're killed later. You know, I mean, no one wants that job, and and so our, our heritage has been one of cultural dominance, which makes it hard to raise political questions of change because it implies changing the, that which we dominate. Somebody else. You don't have to do all three questions, but something that you're, you're less certain about, something that you have learned from outside your tradition, any of those things. Go, Tim. Growing up in a rural Baptist church and, and being where we are now, I, I kind of am increasingly skeptical of the connections between Christianity, even mainline Christianity, and national politics. That becomes more of a, a leap for me because it seems like there's always a, a connection between the two, whether you're liberal or conservative, there's just like this inseparable connection. And so I'm becoming increasingly skeptical of you know, just how much it, it, it seems like the, the, the argument growing up was we need to influence politics, but if they're in the end, what I'm seeing now is more like national politics tends 
Tim, that's a great point. I have to confess one of my lack of certainties as well. I kissed that baby of yours. I thought for sure we had a state fan, and I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not certain of that anymore. <laughs> I thought I heard Tar Heel. Uh, I, 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 Laura confirmed it, and when mom hears it, that, you know, that, that's kind of, kind of what, what you know. But, yeah, that's a fantastic point. Absolutely. Somebody else. Let's do one more. SK, go for it. Um, kind of related, so going to number three, I don't know that, the, that Christianity does much with the ego and kind of in the power dynamic of um, as an individual um, dealing with our egos. And so going to number two, um, like Brian, I think Buddhism and psychology have offered a lot in that, in that regard. Hmm. How to be a person who's not seeking to grab power and just kind of living out some of the, the Christian... Um, hope to, to not be grabbing power everywhere, but how to do that on an interpersonal um, basis. Sure. And, you know, one of the things that I think um, we, um, we run into now, and, and you hear us as a community pushing back on this all the time, but pushing back in a way that we don't really fully know the way forward. We know that we've been crafted uh, as people, believers, enthusiasts in a world that's dominantly individualistic. One that, that says kind of start with myself, um, and we talk about whether it's personal faith or prosperity or, or meaning, whatever tradition you're in often has a long history of talking about me. Um, and so when we talk about collective faith, it's a very challenging thing for us because Christianity has had three or 400 years in the world of the eye, which is, which is tough. It's, it's, it's definitely tough. Let me move us to another question. Um, look at Acts 17. We're not going to read this tonight. This is a, this is a narrative that I, I, I want you to read, but it, we're not going to explicate this text uh, in great detail. But we have a, a story here of the, 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 um, the Apostle Paul landing in Athens on Mars Hill in one of the most educated worlds and communities. There's obviously comparisons to the world that, 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 uh, that we live in. We, uh, I think a study identified um, uh, our area, Triangle RTP, Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, as like the second most educated kind of little slice of our country. I mean, you know, we, we, we are a well-educated community uh, uh, in that way. And, and we see Paul dialoguing. With, uh, with people who believe in philosophy, they believe in God, but they believe in it in, in different ways. And it's an interesting dialogue. If you'll, if you'll read this, one of the things that you'll notice is that, um, that Paul affirms the spirituality. He doesn't critique their spirituality, um, and he receives some of it. And he pushes back on some of it. The, the major pushback is, is not their worship, but their idolatry. Is that the idea that they can represent God in intangible figures, in figures of wood or stone or otherwise. And he draws the conversation from that form of kind of representational worship to the worship of the living God. And, and, and as I imagine this conversation, it, it broaches a very vigorous dialogue of how he understands who is the living God that is a creator of, of all the earth. And, and one of the things when we talked last week about 
about orthodoxy. I believe that that was a significant portion of what he described, uh, this crazy message of, 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 of death, burial, and resurrection of God, which I don't think the Greeks would have had any category for. Um, but here's the question that I wanted to, to, um, to throw your way. And I'm going to wrap this up with just a, a few ideas on this as well. But, um, but in our world that we live in, not the Mars Hill of the past, but the world that we live in, how do you think uh, people, uh, the church or people of Christian faith, uh, people that have our kind of uh, our tradition and our story and our narrative of truth. How do you think we should interact with the world of ideas around us? This could just be, uh, does it have to be like a methodology? It can be, it could be an attitude, but how do you think we should interact with the, the world of ideas that surrounds us? And again, this could just be an adjective, if you want. I was talking to somebody yesterday about reality and about hanging out with kids at reality. And when you hang out with kids at reality, um, you know, it doesn't matter that you have a PhD or that you are a professor or that you, you're working in your house or whatever is important to you, because they don't care, you know? And you just have to kind of be human and live in the moment. And I realize how little I do that. And so when I think of Christianity and how it relates to the ideas and the education and all those things on some level, it's not really human. You know? I mean, it is. But it's really not the most important thing. And I think it's kind of a fake constructed reality. I know this, you guys know this. I'm a huge fan of Henry Nouwen and his journey from Harvard Divinity School to um, to uh, living his, the, the rest of his life in a, a community of people that people would call disabled. He would never refer to them as such as his friends. Uh, was an incredible narrative of what really matters and what really has meaning. And actually, one of the points that I had for tonight was this sense um, that that perhaps we do not need to defend God in the world that we are in. And, and, and perhaps in our defending of God, we may actually construct all of the wrong attitudes. You guys know we read a lot of John Howard Yoder here, and one of the, the, um, the, the lessons that we've learned is this whole idea of living in reconciliation, binding and loosing, holding people to obligations and loosing them from obligations. And one of the things that he says most forcefully in that is that you cannot live in reconciliation if your mission is to defend God. Mark, you told me a funny story this week about uh, a theologian and uh, this idea of uh, defending God. Do you remember, remember that story? Yeah, it was, uh, his name was James Boyce. He was a conservative Presbyterian minister at 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia. But he, yeah, I can't remember, I was listening to a talk of his years and years and years ago, but I, I just remember him, I remember him being in dialogue with, with uh, the voices that were critiquing God and then in dialogue with the folks who were saying, we have to do something about this. We have to, um, we have to tell people the truth with a capital T and we have to defend, um, we have to defend our theological positions. We have to defend, you know, the faith, you know, and that he was imagining, he was imagining God enduring criticism and just saying, you know, it's not, 
these people really are not bothering me. I don't know why they're bothering you so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, there's, there's something about the posture of living in life rather than ideas. And I, Susan, that's what I would suspect, that, that um, the, the things that are part of your life, being a professor, having a PhD, being a mom, uh, having you know, all forms of, of success in your life as well as painful narratives in your life, those can be abstractions as well as things that you make real in your life. And one of the things you're describing is in your volunteer life, you're making real a different set of priorities than the ones that, that you live in. And any of you guys who spend some of your time reading academic writing, you know half of academic writing is telling someone why they should listen to you uh, rather than truly engaging the idea that, that is, is, is on hand. Somebody else. I don't have time for a lot of these, but Brett, tell me something else that you learn or how do we interact in the world of ideas around us? So I'm trying to, I'm kind of work on how it connects. It's more for the question before, but I think it does. Um, I keep thinking about suffering and kind of the, just when we're facing into suffering, um, and I see this a lot, being in the hospital, um, working with people in uh, the neurology department, people in um, psychiatry, and seeing people that are families losing loved ones, and in the, in the midst of this, in, in the face of this immense suffering, um, a lot of those ideas get lost. Um, and so, one way that I see the church has failed people in that is that when they are in the face of that, that a lot of the theology is so very so surface level that it it, it doesn't it, it breaks. It doesn't like okay, my you know loved one has this brain trauma, and I, I don't know what to do with this. I can pray about this, but the person's going to die. What do I do with that? Um, and so, I'm just kind of getting lost in my thoughts here, but I think trying to look in through the, like, what do we do as people when we see suffering? And one thing that I do, and I think we all can do this, is is how to not get caught up in, but what does this mean? What is, where, you know, not to process it, but to just be there and just to be with people. And I think that's, um, you know, one thing that you know, we're, we're good at bringing food and doing things like that, but um, sometimes it's like we're quick to want to fix um, and make things better, make things make people feel better. And sometimes people aren't going to feel better. Um, sometimes people are going to deal with mental illness for years and years and years, and we just need to be with them. Um, people are going to lose somebody close to them, and we need to learn to to just be rather than to talk or do. Yeah, and I don't want to in any way set us up as a um, something uniquely special in this comment. I think a lot of people do this well, but one of the things as a community for us that we have uh, spent a lot of time with, Mark, you've led us in this a great deal, is that we sometimes use the language of lament in the music and the art that we do. We are trying to open up a language that isn't always, isn't always triumphant. And, and Brett, you raise um, what to me is a, a really significant point is that the gospel tends to, Wendy, you said this uh, several weeks ago, is the gospel drives us to come near those who are wounded and suffer. And to some degree, it, it has even more meaning to us in places where we don't have an explanation of how the world works. And to some degree, it... it, it Re, it re-identifies us not as people who can see themselves as, as justified or merited in some way in their good lives. Uh, uh, our theology actually pushes us to, to go beyond that to, to woundedness. But again, several people have said this. 
part of the Christian narrative on uh, historically has been one that has been justifying inequality or justifying somebody's woundedness uh, because to some degree when you're deeply enmeshed in, in the leadership of society, you're implicated in the, in the wounds of others. And I think that's a, a powerful point. Let me throw just a couple out um, before we – I just have a second, man, but go for it because uh, I'm, I'm nervous about Mark's time here. Go for it. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, go for it. Yeah. Um, to me, the world of ideas and academics is just a tool. I, I grew up on college campus and, you know, saw all these professors paddling over to our house in their bare feet. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's neither an ivory tower nor a. Um, it is in itself not something to say, oh, this is the most wonderful thing on earth, or to say this is the most horrible thing on earth because it separates us from everything. There are tools that you can use for many different purposes, good and bad, um, and just like most everything else in life. I'll just real quick wanted to say, when I think of one of the ways you can use those as tools is to know that whatever local church congregations we were familiar with growing up and have experienced since then. Um, one of the things we can learn is that the local church that we grew up in does not represent the sum total of all of the Christian faith and tradition and all that God has ever said and done to communicate to the hearts of people and to build community and, and all else that God does. Um, so a lot of the things that I heard when people talked about things that really bothered them about a church uh, that they grew up in, those were, or that they've observed, those are things where there is a correction from some other part of the Christian community. And one thing that the world of ideas does is allow us to look at different cultures. I mean, the, the, the cure for the racism of southern white churches was found just down the street in the theology of the black churches. And that is also a Christian church. You know, so um, there are a lot of times that we are we are to readily identify Christianity with the particular lopsided warts and all version of it that may exist in any particular place in time. Yeah, I think it's really helpful. I think there's two two dialogues that's going on. One is a dialogue that's inside the umbrella of Christian community, and there's another one that's outside that umbrella that might say very legitimately, you're just a tool uh, to, to understand something that might be meaningful. And I think that's the type of conversation that we find ourselves around. Um, Mark, why don't you get ready to lead us into confession and absolution? I want to just say three lines on this um, that I think could, can, are, can help us in, in our curiosity, our connection to ideas beyond our own tradition is the first is simply that multiple perspectives is rooted into Christianity. I mean, wouldn't it's been so much easier if there was one gospel uh, instead of four? And wouldn't it be much easier to worship a single God rather than a trinity? Uh, and and what, what has happened historically to anyone who's tried to collapse the four gospels into a single message or or the three persons of god into a, a single god 
They've been considered heretics. They failed in that mission. So multiple perspectives are deeply rooted in our tradition. Um, A second line that I'll make is that how does one live out an orthodox faith? And Mark asked us to sing about this tonight is that it's done through love. I think that's one of the things that we forget forget about is that we don't sign up in, in affirmation of an idea. We sign up for this tradition in embodied love and faith. And if embodied love is the mark that drives us, that in so many ways speaks to every way that we engage ideas other than our own. The fourth line is simply this. It's the importance of cooperation, is that there's been a tendency, and it's why I told the analogy earlier about the certainty from pastor to uh, NGO person, but to some degree, Whenever we encounter people who is doing the kingdom work of God, where the, the poor are being cared for, the naked are being clothed, the, 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 uh, those who are in prison are being cared for and visited, people who are embodying and enacting what we would call the kingdom of God, um, I think these are people we don't need to convert. These are people who are already converted into the kingdom of God's life. And we need to ask them, what motivation drives you to do this? Because I don't think in any way our heritage, uh, the, the, the power of the Bible on this, and I, I realize I wrote a whole book on this with Dan, I'm not, is the idea that what makes the Bible so powerful is it does not speak to every moment and time and everything in actuality, but it is incarnate in a moment, in a in instance it's god in flesh which allows us to draw from it into every circumstance but its authenticity is in the fact that it it, it came in a moment it came in a time and and so for us as a, a, a people we should be drawn to people who are building the god's kingdom by another name in our midst and we should collaborate with them we should ask them what what we can learn from them because as all of you have said there are parts of our tradition that we don't understand and that we struggle with Next week, we'll finish this up, not just with adding a new identity marker, but asking the question, how do they connect? What are the connection points? Because as I said, if you remember, you're not going to like all of the identity markers. I would pretty much go to bat to say I think they're all deeply present in this community, but not in every person in this community. Uh, So uh, there'll be some that you like more than others, uh, of course, but how are they connected? And we'll do that next week. Thank you, Mark. I think this is a beautiful song that we're going to be doing for Confession by Amy Lou Harris off of her Wrecking Ball album. What I love about this song is that it, it, it takes the view that it is a belonging together, and this, I think, goes right off of what you're saying, Brett. There's this, this belonging, this being together, that that is, in fact, uh, a place where healing happens, that um, that is a place that we draw near to the divine is uh, by being in community and relationship and a caring, loving relationship with one another. This is Orphan Girl.
Solution this week, I was tweeting back and forth with Dale today. Where Dale, <laughs> I said, Dale said, I don't know if I've ever played. A, this is the first time I've ever played a foreigner song <laughs> in church. And I tweeted back and said, this, this might be the first time anybody has played a foreigner song in church. Um, and I don't know if I can even sing this song. And it's incredible how high it gets at the chorus. But we'll just, we're just going to have to play this in my ear, see what happens. But. Um, but let's let's do the chorus together for a minute so we can all see how hard it's going to be for me to reach it. And then we can all join in it together, please. So we all have heard this on the radio a million times, or at least if you're of my generation, you have. So. I want to know what love is. We can sing a doctor below like that. I want to know 
Then I'll have a seat briefly. As may be true for many of you, um, when I was in high school, I guess starting in about eighth or ninth grade, I would play in crappy rock bands with my friends, and um, I, I not so shamefully admit that we played a lot of Foreigner. <laughs> uh, Foreigner and Sticks were both in heavy rotation in our sort of band practices, so that was definitely a throwback for me. Um, one of the things that we say every week is that here at Emmaus Way, we celebrate an open table. And what we mean by that is that everyone is welcome to join at the table uh, when, we, when we go to break bread with one another and, and share wine and juice with one another. But for those of you who know anything about the history of the church or the history of Christianity, this is one of the most sort of contested spaces over the last 2,000 years. And we know that people coming from various parts of the world or from various types of traditions might perceive this table in very different ways. Right? And different things might be important to them. So we might see this table as the literal body and blood of Christ once it's been sanctified that we are literally breaking for one another. We might see it as, uh, as a, 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 a metaphor or some sort of picture that shows us what the sacrifice of Christ looks like. Um, if we look at it from a scientific perspective, we might see it as, here are some calories that I'm giving you, <laughs> and hopefully you'll give me some calories back. Um, if we looked at it from a Jewish perspective, we might be bothered by the fact that the bread is leavened, or if we looked at it from uh, any number of other cultural perspective, we might be concerned that the bread isn't gluten-free or that we don't have the right kind of grape juice, or et cetera, et cetera. There's so many different things that can go wrong at this table. But I think what we mean when we say an open table is the one thing that seems to consistently go right at the table, is that we know that people are coming with all of those perspectives and more. We know that this table is something that you may all have different associations with, you may all bring different ideas to, and yet what makes it meaningful and what makes it significant for our community is that you come. You encounter one another, that you see the kingdom of God being realized in the lives of the people who cohabitate with you in this community, and that in breaking that bread for one another, you help to bring about that kingdom in this world. So I encourage you all as we come to the table, we break bread for one another saying the body of Christ broken for you, pour wine and juice for one another saying the blood of Christ shed for you. That you encounter one another because regardless of our ideas, it's the doing of this thing. It's the being of this people that is our identity as a community. Welcome to the table.